attorney representatives from two of our client organizations with us today, and they're going to be sharing their stories of connection through the lens of their work and experience, piloting creative programs that were designed to foster connection with community members and their grantees, while effectively bringing their board along on the way. So I want to start off uh, with a little bit about me. My name is Meredith Lee Morgan, and I'm a client success consultant for Foundin Technologies. In this role, I help existing clients optimize how they use Foundin's GLM SLM system to best fulfill their mission as they grow or as their funding strategies evolve. And in a past life, I was the grants manager for a Foundin client that also prioritized grantee-centric funding. So I'm really excited to be joining you all here uh, to learn uh, and to be your facilitator uh, with, with looking at the cool work that our speakers are doing um, as they work to build real relationships with their grantee partners. We're joined today by Karen McKelvey, the Grants and Program Manager of the Laird Norton Family Foundation, Ambar Hansen, Community Relation Op Relationship Officer for the Mortensen Family Foundation, and Danielle O'Hara, Community Relationship Officer with the Philanthropy Focus, also at the Mortensen Family Foundation. Karen, do you wanna go ahead and kick us off by telling the folks a little bit more about the background of Laird Norton? Happy to be here. I am calling in from Seattle, Washington on the lands of the Duwamish and Coast Salish people today. Um, happy to be with you. So the um, Laird Norton family itself is a seventh generation family with more than 500 living family members. Um, and about 75 of them are involved with our foundation and the giving work. Um, so as a foundation, our work is kind of twofold to both support organizations that embody the shared values of the family and also to foster connection and philanthropic engagement for family members. Um, the philanthropic model we currently work on has been in place for about 15 years. Um, and it's really an interesting uh, way to engage the family. So each of our five giving areas is comprised of a fund advisory committee or a FAC as we call them, um, comprised of family members. Any family member is eligible to join. And so each of those committees gets to meet every year, learn about philanthropy and then make funding decisions. So each year we are making about one and a half million dollars in grants and that's across five primary giving areas. Um, our arts and education funding seeks to eliminate the educational opportunity gap through arts integration. Um, our climate change work is currently really focused on carbon sequestration and centering um, climate and environmental justice. Human services work focuses on youth and young adults who may be um, involved with foster care system or legal systems and be in need of longer term support um, and resources in order to, um, to move forward with their lives. We also support um, watershed stewardship where watersheds are seen as kind of the organizing system to explore ecology, communities, social justice, and climate change. Um, and then our fifth area is really exciting. It's the giving area for the young people of the family. So um, the Sapling Fund is for family members aged 14 to 20, and it's a chance for them to come together um, to, de to decide what their philanthropic priorities are every year, and then to make grants to organizations that they bring forward. Um, so those are our five primary giving areas. And um, yeah, excited to talk with you more and happy to pass the mic to my colleagues, uh, Danielle and Ambar. Well, I can start and Ambar can jump in. My name is Danielle O'Hara. Uh, I'm a community relationship officer with the Mortensen Family Foundation. I manage two of our three grant making portfolios. Uh, we work in environment across Minnesota. Um, we work internationally uh, in Africa and Central America, and I manage those two portfolios. And we work in education in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and Ambar manages 
that portfolio. Uh, the Mortensen family has been doing grant making since the late 90s, um, but hired their first staff person, our executive director, um, in around 2010. And it's at that point that we really kind of hammered out those three grant making areas and um, also developed a mission. And I'm going to pass it to Ambar to talk about the mission and the work that we've done around that. Thanks, Danielle. Uh, good afternoon or good and good morning, depending on where you're at, uh, everyone. Uh, my name is Ambar Cristina Hansen. I use she, her, hers pronouns. Uh, Amber and Ambar are totally fine. I'm product of a bilingual bicultural family. Um, and I'm a community relationship officer also at the Mortensen Family Foundation. Um, uh, Danielle spoke about our three um, grant program areas. Uh, the mission for the foundation and spoke uh, to those three kind of being created about 10 years ago, 12 years ago when uh, the first executive director uh, came in. But the mission of the foundation actually was um, uh, finalized and came to fruition in 2018. And it really is about strengthening community-driven approaches uh, that advance equity, opportunity, and sustainability. And so the, those are the areas, as you can see, that then we invest in and work with communities to address and, and, and hopefully have meaningful impact, which are the education international and, um, and uh, environmental areas uh, that we work in. In addition to that, though, we also do what we call impact investment. Um, so uh, really putting the endowment side of the foundation to work and have about almost 80% of our assets um, uh, in uh, mission-related and impact investment. So really looking at ensuring that it is going to um, uh, opportunities uh, that um, are for good um, while being also good stewards of that endowment. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, I. I want to start off, we've talked a little bit in some of our, our pre-call conversations about the um, the spectrum of how far folks are in this, this process of trying to, you know, really revise how you think about grant making. And so I'd like to start um, with um, folks over at Mortensen. Can you tell me some of the ways that you guys have started operationalizing some of the um, some of the elements of trying to build community, support community, build relationships in your grant making nuts and bolts process. So the um, kind of bringing community members into our grant making process is kind of the what and the how. And I just want to talk really briefly about the why. Um, so Ambar mentioned that, you know, kind of equity, uh, equitable grant making is one of um, a key areas of focus of our mission statement that was articulated in 2018. And that element, we have been interrogating since 2018. We've really been trying to understand what equitable grant making is since 2018. But it's really in 2020 um, with the pandemic and more particularly the murder of George Floyd, and just want to remind folks that we are here in Minneapolis, that um, we really were pushed to operationalize, actionalize uh, what that means. Um, and for us, it, it meant that we really kind of wanted to drill down on how we make ourselves accountable to community. And so we have a set of commitments that we developed at that time that really we center 
we center in our work. Um, and they are making more grants and having a larger percentage of our grant making go to BIPOC led organizations, black indigenous people of color organizations, organizations that are led by black BIPOC individuals, as well as organizations that are led by and for the communities they serve. So that's one of our commitments. The second commitment is um, doing more grant making in the area of systems change and advocacy. And then the third commitment that we made is centering community in our grant making processes by bringing community members into the grant making processes. And so we've been really, um, yeah, kind of working hard to kind of move in this direction. And this third area, the bringing community members onto our grant making committees, we piloted right away. Um, we made the commitments in June 2020 and by the kind of end of 2020, we were thinking about how we actually do this. And so using the environmental committee as um, kind of a guinea pig for this, kind of a pilot, we started thinking about what does this look like and um, decided to, for, that first we really needed to engage with community, that we were in a place with the environmental program that we needed to kind of hear from community members um, what direction we should move. Our environmental program at that time was very focused on kind of watershed protection, working at a watershed level, habitat and biodiversity conservation. Um, and so we wanted to ask a very broad range of the community, very diverse range of the community, to what extent these guidelines, the focus of our environmental portfolio, aligned with our racial equity commitments. And so we had a series of focus groups. We probably had kind of seven or eight conversations with maybe 70 people um, asking them that question and got really good, honest, open feedback, which was not very much. Um, and the process was so enriching for us that we brought folks together again in a workshop setting to um, kind of prioritize some of the feedback that we got and the themes that had come out in those focus groups. So that process really, um, one, gave us excellent feedback to revise our guidelines in a way that would be more aligned with our racial equity commitments and in a way that had real community voice but it also um, brought us into deeper connection with the community. And through that process, we identified five people to join our um, environmental portfolio, our environmental committee. So I'll pause there, ask Ambar if she wants to add anything. And there's much more to say, but I'm, I'm sure we'll get to it. Um, I won't add much except to say that, you know, we did start then with the environmental committee. And so, um, I have, uh, with the learnings that came from Danielle's process, uh, started last September with a similar process in our Expanding Opportunities for Children and Families program uh, to engage the community first uh, around our guidelines to get feedback, both because of, of what Danielle shared around, you know, are these the right guidelines, but also um, because we felt it was really important to make sure that we're not inviting community members to a table that's already been set. So really engaging the community in the process of reviewing and revising our, 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 our guidelines was in, an important step um, before getting to this place of inviting community members to the committee. So it's been a pretty emergent and organic process to get to where we are right now, um, uh, but that community voice was really essential there. 
it's really exciting that you're looking at this in terms of thinking about the the different communities that you're working with as far as your program areas because there are like really rich specific things for each of these uh, target target issues you're trying to solve. Um, Karen, I want to um, I want to pull you into this conversation too. I know you guys over at Laird Norton are doing some really exciting things as well. Um, where when you think about operationalizing some of these things in your grant making process, where are you guys at? Yeah, thank you, Meredith. And I just like so inspired by the work that Danielle and Ambar are doing. Uh, participatory grant making just sounds such a rich, rich piece of work. Um, look forward to hearing more. Um, yeah, so we, in terms of the operations piece, especially over the last, you know, two-ish years, some of the changes kind of being forced by the whole new way that we all had to do our business, but then also really being in um, in connection, being in relationship a little bit differently with, um, with our grantee uh, partner organizations. So yeah, over the last few years, we've, we've kind of slowly stepped away from bigger, longer written proposals, um, you know, slowly making them shorter, more concise, maybe more customized towards returning applicants versus new applicants. And now this year in 2022, we're mostly doing all applications and final reporting by video calls, um, which I think will bring its own amount of learning. I think there's benefit to both having written pieces and, um, and those personal conversations. But I think more what we're learning through the operationalizing of these things is that relationship really is at the center. So if we're having, you know, an hour long conversation with an organization that serves as both their, you know, final report, as well as gathering information that will um, empower us as staff to really put forth a proposal to our committees, then that is kind of all we need. Um, our committee members, you know, aren't interested in long written reports, they're not interested in long written proposals. So um, we've been able to tailor and streamline things so that we're getting enough information we need as staff to advocate for those organizations and represent them to our committees. And so in that way, we get a lot, we have a lot of, um, a lot of flexibility as staff, which is, which is really great to be creative. Um, a few of the other practices that we've brought in over time, we offer declination grants. So if we're uh, asking an organization as an invite only funder, if we're showing up and saying, hey, we want to get to know you, please do some work for us to educate us about your work, then we are going to offer at least $2,500 for their time to participate in that process. Um, and then also for current partners, if they, if we're asking them to show up on a panel, if we're making a site visit, if we're, you know, doing additional engagement with them or asking for more of their time and expertise, then we're also going to offer um, you know, small honorarium for for their time and expertise to spend time with us um, and our committee members. So those are those are a few things. Um, we're also this last year stepping into multi-year grants for the first time, and I think we'll have time to talk about that a little bit later as a tool. Um, what else was I going to mention? Um, oh, and as we're all of our committees, I appreciate my colleagues talking about that. Uh, integration of really bringing equity into the center of their work. And, um, you know, to be totally transparent, we are three white ladies working at a family foundation that is comprised of mostly all white um, family members. And so that work is ongoing and it has, it has been amazing to have those conversations with committee members to 
uh, help really understand why centering the people most affected by the challenges that we're addressing need to be the ones who are at the center of the solutions and trusting them as experts and really bringing some of that language forward um, to engage our family members in the current best practices in philanthropy. And that is that is a key part of it. Um, so one of the one of the pieces we're doing, we host meetings in different cities as our family members and grantee partners are kind of spread all over the country. Um, we're also starting to make land acknowledgement grants. So if we come to uh, have a meeting in Minneapolis, I might reach out to the two of you and say, hey, you know, who are some of the native led organizations you're working with who, you know, who we could make a small contribution to in honor of being here um, on their land. Um, I will stop there, Meredith, thank you. I love the conscientiousness and the thoughtfulness that all of you are taking as you as you think about how to actually do grant making better because it's it's really easy to sort of get in the the way that you do things and sort of stay in that path because you're still seeing good things happen in your communities but the um the impulse to want to be better i think is at the root of philanthropy and I, it's it's like you said karen inspiring to see it we've had a, a few questions come in on the chat um i think I, i'll i'll start off with some pose to you karen because you were most recent um in terms of the types of questions that you're asking on um video final reports and more broadly um have those shifted as well yeah so questions um yeah that is thank you for asking that we yeah, I mean, it, and it's interesting too, I named our five different giving areas and in some ways we're trying to standardize how our processes are, but in some ways each of them almost operates like its own mini foundation because they're different committee members. We've had different types of relationships with the organizations in each um, in each portfolio. Um, so we're really not super, um, super prescriptive about those questions. I think that's a direction that I want us to go to just be you know, making sure that we're gathering really same information across um, organizations we're talking to, but it's essentially even in our written final reports was essentially, you know, tell us what went well this year. Um, tell us where maybe you had some challenges and, you know, share with us what you're looking forward to in the next year. What do you what do you think is coming in the next year? So pretty simple and pretty mm -hmm. conversationally based. Um, we're not we're not a funder who's ever been really particular about collecting specific budget information. Most of our grants are general operating support, or maybe if it's restricted, it might just be restricted to one particular program within a larger organization. Um, so I, you know, I will share our contact information. I'd be happy to pass along specific things to anyone, but for these conversations right now, it's not super prescriptive yet. Um, did I answer that question, Meredith? I think so. I think so. Okay. We actually had a question that was hoping that you might be willing to share um, some of your forms. So you sure. <laughs> spoke yep. to that too. Happy to. Um, one other question for you, Karen, in terms of your, your video applications reports, how are you compiling the info for the committee? Is it is it something that you just hand off directly or are you doing some um, synthesis on the program staff level? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. And I would like to give credit to my coworker because she kind of piloted this with our youth giving area last year. And now we're doing it uh, with all of our grant making areas. So we are inviting um, the organizations to join us for this time. We also open up those conversations to committee members. So if they're available, any committee member can sit in on those conversations and participate and ask questions. And then we're recording them. So generally about half hour to 45 minutes, we're trying to keep it under an hour. So we're recording all those conversations and then hosting them on a private Vimeo site so that any 
any committee member, if they really want to do a deep dive and learn and hear from the organization, they can listen to that recording. Um, but yes, then we as staff are taking that information um, as well as any follow-up conversation we might have with the organization or you know, other resources they make available from their website or social media or showing up at their events um, and putting that together in a shorter summary. And um, ultimately, we're not the decision makers for mm -hmm. our grants, but putting forth a recommendation to the committee to say, you know, based on what we've learned, based on existing relationship and how this lines with your priorities, we might recommend you consider a grant of X amount this year. So we're, we're influencing and guiding the direction uh, for the committee. Very cool. Um, sort of dovetailing uh, over to the Mortensen uh, folks, uh, committee sort of sprung to mind the next question that we had up in the queue. Before you guys started inviting community members into uh, sitting on your community or your committees rather, what was the committee composition like? Um, the Mortensen board is made up of nine uh, Mortensen family members. Um, Mortensen mother, Alice Mortensen, four sons and those four sons spouses. And so we have nine um, board members. And then we each of our committees have had four Mortensen family members on them. And so speaking for the environmental uh, committee, we had four Mortensons and then brought on five uh, community members. And so we now have a nine person committee. What about you, Ambar? Uh, so similar to Danielle, also have um, a different set of four, uh, although we have one person that crosses over uh, into um, various, uh, our, some of our committees, um, four family members. And recently, um, through the, um, there was a question in the, in the chat I saw that was about how we invited folks to come into the committee. And um, similar to um, in Danielle's process, what happened, we didn't create a specific process per se until we got through the guidelines uh, process to um, invite community members on committee. But what happened was that through the conversations, I think one thing that I should mention that was probably not mentioned before is that in all of our focus groups, we had board members present. Um, uh, and I think that was really important because, um, you know, when we talk about having community members on committee and you don't know necessarily who the community is, it can feel like this like nebulous, scary, like who is community? What does this mean? Who might be coming to join us? Especially when we're talking about a family foundation where there's just that level of kind of connection and intimacy in the space. And what happened was that by virtue of the focus groups that we had, relationships started to emerge between board members and community members and leaders started to kind of surface to the top in terms of folks that would be a really good fit to um, coming on to the um, uh, committees. And so um, it kind of organically happened that um, some folks just started to surface in terms of bringing the level of expertise in their personal and their professional experiences um, um, that were unique and uh, kind of missing, uh, if you will, at the at the committee level that started to surface. And so they were invited to come uh, be part of an open house to get to know um, the board uh, committee members that were there and ask questions and then vice versa. 
and then we're invited to join the committee afterwards. So that's kind of the high level overview of what the process was to get community members on committee. Like Ambar said, you know, we're, we're looking for expertise to round out what we didn't have, but we also, you know, in addition to, you know, just kind of sectoral diversity, racial diversity, gender, um, geographic diversity, just diversity of all kinds, we wanted to make sure that we had people that were um, ready to challenge, willing to challenge, um, and yeah, kind of um, ask hard questions. We wanted to make sure that we had people that were able to change their mind. We wanted to make sure that we had people that, um, you know, kind of we, we saw able to kind of build on one another's ideas. And so we also, in addition to looking for diversity and expertise, we were looking for good community, good committee mm -hmm. members as well, and kind of tried to think about different um, attributes that would lead us to that. That's a, a great way to think about this in terms of trying to make the conversations productive, especially when there is some inherent power balance uh, issues on that committee, I'm sure, with the family being um, in the minority at that point, which I'm sure was a, an interesting thing. I um, I want to move us on because I think we're a lot of the questions coming in are, are moving towards um, the lessons that you all have learned um, from this work as far as thinking about um, lessons and also um, opportunities that you found that you didn't actually anticipate as you were you were gearing up for this. Um, I, I kind of want to actually open the can of worms in terms of the committee composition. How did you, um, what, tell us about what came out of that for lessons and opportunities. I can go here and it, this is, you know, either one of us can speak to it. Um, but um, uh, actually credit to uh, Danielle, because I think you know, and and we've had some of our um, board committee members share, you know, we went from three to five, right? Um, and so uh, I think it was really uh, the conversation in the beginning with committee, with um, Danielle's committee started out with um, thinking about the number of, of committee members that should be there. And Danielle, I, I think you should be probably maybe speaking more to this because I think it was wise to say, let's not talk about, let's not think about the number of people that should be on the committee. Let's just go through the process. And, and you know, once we get to the other side, kind of define like the number of committee members that we have want to have. And I think that um, that was really key uh, and important because uh, it wasn't until those relationships were kind of built with community members on the board, um, that then you have kind of the unknown become known and the excitement then building about, oh, like these are the people that we might have on our committee. We want all of them, right? So um, I think that, that's, that that was really, um, really key. And, and again, part of kind of this emergent process of like, let's, there's pieces that don't need to necessarily de be defined here. Let's wait and be defined, have those defined elsewhere. But I think one thing that was um, a huge learning was also the fact that, you know, when it comes to doing um, uh, this equity work and our board has been on this equity journey, as we mentioned, since 2018, um, there's a lot of things that we can do in terms of facilitated discussions and, um, you know, theory and having folks watch videos and read and et cetera. But the transformation happens um, truly when you're building these shared spaces between community and, and 
between communities, right? The, the family community, the board community, and, and the communities that we're working with. And so um, we're still in the in the process, and this is a never-ending process of transformation, but those connections were really key. Um, we could have had a charge to staff to go and do things and then come back and report to the board, but there was a lot of intentionality of the board being part of the process with us. So that's, that was a huge learning um, for us and a really important factor in the sustainability of this work, because we know that at any point in time, any of us can win the lottery uh, and you know, go off to the Caribbean somewhere. Uh, uh, and this work needs to be really sustainable over time. And so having that board engagement was really key. Eli Winstrom put in a question that I think is really um, worth, worth calling out. Um, when you're discussing the community members joining the committee, um, who are these people? Like, <laughs> where, where do they come from in the community? So I can, uh, and again, we've done this in a couple of portfolios, and so um, I'll, I'll speak to it for uh, the environmental portfolio. In that focus group process, we were very intentional to be reaching uh, statewide just because our Minnesota, uh, our environment program does work statewide. And so we were looking kind of rural and urban throughout the entire state. Um, we were looking at, you know, so we, at the time we had this focus on water quality. Um, and that, you know, it was kind of environmental conservation, which is a very narrow slice, I would say, of the community. And so we really busted open wide what we were calling, what we defined as water quality and who was involved in it, because the reality is that everyone is concerned by water quality, right? And so instead of, in, in addition to, um, talking and inviting environmental conservation organizations to participate. We were talking to native users, we were talking to environmental justice, we were talking to sustainable agriculture, we were talking to climate and energy, we were talking to climate justice, we were talking to outdoor recreation. We really busted it as wide mm -hmm. as we could. And that really enabled us to kind of then be looking at the diversity across the, um, the focus groups that we were able to attract. And yeah, just to kind of go through who our committee members are, our five committee members, we have a farmer who is from Mexico. Uh, he has his own farm and he also works as an outreach education farmer to um, new American farmers. We have a, a woman, a native woman who is the head of uh, native studies at one of our local universities. We have a young Asian woman uh, who focuses on climate policy. We have a young African-American uh, environmental justice activist. And we have a native man that kind of works on kind of culture and ecology issues. And so it's just a very, yeah, diverse group in that, in, in addition to our four Mortensen family members. So I hope that answers or gives some idea of kind of who the community is and who's on the committee. Absolutely. Karen, in terms of um, some of the questions that have come your way, um, a lot of things about like, what have your applicants been saying in response to the video um, approach um, in terms of thinking about uh, uh, multi-year funding, some of those pieces. I know that you have a lot of lessons and opportunities that you can speak to. Do you want to start off with either of those? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I didn't see... Can I didn't follow the chat specifically, so That's okay. um, if you want to pick one, I'm happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start wherever. let's start with your your applicants' um, responses, like what you've learned from your applicants going through this shift and how you engage. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky, right? Feedback um, 
you know, how, how honest are folks with us all the time? And I think, again, that comes back to being rooted in relationship. Um, so we haven't, I haven't heard, you know, glaring, you know, wow, this is terrible. We're not into this. For the most part, folks are appreciative that we're recognizing the value of their time to say, we don't want you spending, you know, eight to 20 hours working on an application that, you know, is just for me to read and distill mm -hmm. into a paragraph. That's not a good use of your time. So for the most part, folks have said, you know, they're really appreciative that we're, um, you know, trying to, trying to make good use of their time and respecting their time. Um, I, you know, in conversations with other funders and colleagues, we've also been challenged to think about, well, what is the value in also having a written piece though? And so I mm -hmm. think we're, we're, we're in that in-between place of trying to find some balance to make sure that there is, as I mentioned before, kind of that, um, you know, that equitable um, look at organizations. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, folks appreciate that we're centering relationship um, in that. Yeah. I, I think the, the time component's definitely there. There's some pressure with the video applications to try and be like professional as possible. And that's um, like- Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, and we- we do our best to, especially for organizations that are new to us, we do our best to communicate. This is really a conversation. Um, yeah. We don't encourage or ask folks to bring slides or anything like that. Um, some people do, you know, they're interested in, in displaying their work in a particular way, but um, for the most part, we're framing it as this is a check-in and time for us to understand what you're working on and, you know, what's what's coming up for you. So. Awesome, awesome. In terms of the the question that had come up about multi-year funding, this is somebody that's sort of new in terms of thinking about that process. It sounds like you guys are starting to look at that too. Are there any particular takeaways that you could share out to folks that are in that same position uh, that you're in? Yeah, so we, um, last year in 2021 uh, was the first time that our board approved multi-year funding. So we had just been making, making one-year grants. And in 2021, we started implementing multi-year grants specifically within our climate work. And it was, uh, it was an opportunity to use the tool there as a way to transition out of one of our priority areas. So we had been investing for many years in um, hastening the demise of fossil fuels. And that was a focus area that the, the current committee said, you know, we're ready to kind of step away from. And we had been communicating that with those partners for, you know, for at least a year that that transition was possibly coming. Um, so in that way, we could use, you know, to your grant as more of that graceful and respectful exit from a partnership so that it's not mm -hmm. just, you know, all of a sudden we're turning off the flow of funds. Sorry, you don't get any more money, but really, you know, planning for that. Um, and now in 2022, that tool is being used by all of our, our committees, I think, to date. Um, and so not only as a way to respectfully, um, you know, end a relationship, but also as a way to support and show great investment and trust going forward. So to say, we know what you're doing. We don't need to check in with you, you know, or have you like reapply every year. Um, yes, we'll keep talking with you, but here's two years or three years of funding because we just trust that you're going to keep doing great work. So it's, it's both, it can be both of those things, but it's, it's new. And I think we'll, you know, maybe we'll get more feedback on it, but. 
It's so important to preserve the work that you've already, like the great work that your grantee partners have done. So having that sort of easing out, I think is a really important thing to do, not just in terms of building the relationship, but also thinking about what it, what it, what were you hoping to achieve with this funding? Did you just totally kill it by pulling the plug, by walking away fast? Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, I, um, yeah. Sorry, just, just to add like some context too, that as a funder, we generally stick around for a long time. So some of these relationships are like, 10 years, more than 10 years. And so we don't have explicit guidelines at this point in terms of this is the maximum number of years or you are eligible for this amount of funding after five years or anything like that at this point, but we do stick around for a while generally, so. Yeah, the centering of relationships is, is super key. What other, more broadly, what lessons do you have that you can share? Because this also segues into our next question. So <laughs> I also wanted to be cognizant of that. Yeah, a couple, a couple of, Examples, I guess, I would share in terms of learning. Um, we in 2021, and my two colleagues, we had also talked about this, but about collecting demographic information had started to really, um, you know, make that a, a clear sign that that's something that's important to us, understanding what the representation is at an organization in terms of it reflecting the, the communities that they're serving. And so I know that Danielle and Ambar, they're really using that information externally that is an integrated part of of what they're doing and how they're reporting back to the community. For us, that's still an internal tool to kind of guide um, guide our priorities, guide what organizations we're, we're working with. Um, but we've learned a lot. The first year we did it and it was, our form and found it was this web of stuff and it was a lot. And uh, we got a lot of information back, but in the end we learned that the narrative responses to questions that we're asking folks about representation, about how they're centering communities in their work was much more rich than just a page of numbers of percentages of, you know, how they categorize, you know, how their leadership and staff categorize um, in terms of race, ethnicity, or, you know, other, other relevant categories to their work. So that's, that's been ongoing learning. And I know that Danielle mm -hmm. and Ambar might, might have something to say about demographics as well. Um, and then the other piece I would say, again, back to just centering relationship as an invitation only funder, we sometimes might show up out of the blue. We've learned of an organization and might just send them an email and say, hey, we, we learned about your work. We're really excited. We'd like to you know, offer a five or $10,000 grant to learn more about your work. And our intention in that is like, hey, we're showing up with money. Isn't that great? But also got feedback and heard, you know, just never heard from some folks. Like we were reaching out to native led organizations and places where we didn't already have relationship and weeks went by. I was like, why is no one writing back to us? And it turns out some of our emails went to junk folders. People don't know mm. who we are. And so kind of that reminder that, you know, you have a phone call, you discuss a little bit before just showing up with like, Hey, we want to give you money. So absolutely. Yeah. Those are a couple of takeaways. We were an invite only uh, shop at my old position as well. And we had that experience as well. I think sometimes people think it's a scam, which is sort of uh, the thing that makes it so important to maybe pick up the phone and build a relationship first. Um, I do wanna shift over to thinking about how you go about building partnership. Um, we've we've touched on this. We've definitely brought it back around um, to this topic. I feel like this is the heart of what we're talking about here. Um, how, 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 what what do we want to talk more about on this point? It, uh, Mortensen folks, I know you, you've done a lot of preliminary work as far as thinking about focus groups uh, to, to cast a wide net and try and bring more people in. 
Karen, I know uh, you all over at Laird Norton have been doing um, a lot of work uh, in terms of trying to bring people into the room, literal room, which I feel like is so novel these days. Um, can I pick on uh, Can I pick on you, Ambar, for thinking about building a partnership? What you all have been doing uh, right now? Yeah, I think that I mean that's really centered to the work that we do. That's you know um, <laughs> Danielle and I are community relationship officers uh, because that community relationship is core to the work that we do, um, and we're constantly thinking about how can we build. Um, trust-based relationships with our partners beyond that kind of transaction of, of, of you know, a grant. Um, and to do that, it means um, a couple of things. Um, we are, um, we, we believe that our accountability is to community first um, and to the communities that we work with and serve. And we talk, when we talk about accountability with our partners, we also let them know that we expect that their accountability is to community first, not to us. You know, we are a funder, um, but the accountability is not to us. It's really to community. And so in that, how can we build relationships to all be collectively accountable to community? Um, it means we listen and we uh, find ways, you know, Karen was talking a little bit about, you know, having video uh, versus written. Um, I'll actually share a, a story here quickly um, that speaks to this relationship with um, our, our partners. Some of our partners and the expanding ops had shared that they were, you know, like the, you know, had kind of made, uh, insinuated around like the, you know, cumbersomeness of the application and how much writing, not just with us specifically, but just in, in general and philanthropy. And so my mind went right away to like, oh, we should just do videos. This is going to be better. Uh, but then I took a step back and I was like, let me let me convene some of our partners and just like, let's have a conversation about what makes sense. And what I learned was some of our partners were like, yes, please, that's better. And some were like, please don't. That sounds horrifying. And so what we did in Expanding Ops was then we moved to doing um giving giving an option like our partners get to choose our renewing partners get to choose we have an op open application process and so in the open application process it is written just because of the sheer volume of of the number of partners that come in uh, but for renewals we do um we do give a an option of a written or verbal application and it looks different for um uh, a little bit different for international and environmental um, program. So similar to what you were saying, Karen, that sometimes we are like a mini foundation within. Um, there are things that kind of go across the gamut and some are, are different. Um, and then we also hear out partners when they're talking to us about what some of their interests and needs are in the work that they're doing. So we bring them together around convenings um, based on the information that they've shared is of interest to them. Um, we are constantly trying to challenge ourselves to make sure that partners are calling us and talking to us, not only when things are going well, but also when things are really hard. And I think that's the greatest testament of a trust-based relationship is, are they comfortable with telling us when things get really hard, you know, this is happening, we need help and support, is there something, you know, are there connections uh, we know that there's this power dynamic in which, and I was on the other side before, right? We're like, we're trying to make things look all sunny and shiny because there's this fear of like, if they know what's really going on, we're going to get that funding taken away. 
And so we also believe in these long um, lasting relationships. We don't have a specific end date of when um, organizations um, are gonna stop, you know, stop receiving funding after a certain amount of year. We have about a third of our um, grants are um, uh, multi-year grant grants each year in the expanding opportunities um, grant portfolio. It, it, for a variety of reasons, it looks different in each one of our grant portfolios. Uh, so those are just some of the things that we've done uh, to look at, you know, how do we create meaningful partnerships that are beyond kind of this grant transaction? Uh, and um, it provides us with a huge opportunity in learning and um, a lot greater impact because of it, because um, we get to learn from partners. We create spaces for partners to learn from each other and have greater impact. Uh, and because of the feedback that we have gotten, um, we've been able to make our processes better, shortening questions. Um, one partner, just to give you another quick example, in a conversation that I was having with them through um, one of our renewal video applications, uh, said, I wish that foundations would hold us accountable to the work that we say we're going to do, but still give us unrestricted dollars. And it was like, oh, we can do that. So in expanding opportunities, we give unrestricted dollars. We ask folks to apply using the guidelines. That's how we're going to select you. But where you spend those dollars, we're going to trust you spend them where you need to spend them. We will not ask for a program budget. We're not going to ask for a budget report because half of those are made up. We can't, you can't possibly tell us how much you spent on paper printing um, every year for this slice of this whole organization, right? And so, and so we've moved to that. We want to hear about the outcomes um, from the program that most aligns with these grant guidelines, um, but the dollars that we give you are unrestricted. Like we actually can do this. And that was a suggestion from a partner and everybody, it's taking us some time to train all of our grant partners in this because they're like, wait, what? You're giving us unrestricted, but you only want to hear about this program. It's like, yeah, uh, that's that's it. It's it's that actually that simple. So uh, those are some examples I can share around, you know, what partnership looks like and the opportunity that it brings to us to make our processes, procedures, and impact so much greater um, in community. That's awesome. I, I feel like we could talk about this um, probably for the rest of the afternoon, but we are coming up on time. I want to I want to basically wrap up in terms of thinking about final thoughts. You know, it's kind. It seems kind of. Um, surface level, but one thing that I often think about, I've heard Pia Infante from Trust-Based Philanthropy Project um, often talk about being a good date, you know, and that mm -hmm. analogy of how we show up and, you know, can we be responsive? Can we be clear about what we're interested in so that other folks know if they're a match for us? Can we, um, yeah, just just that, that relationship focus piece, I think is something I, um, you know, I consider a lot in the work. Um, and I, I love what Ambar said, like, we know we know there's a relationship there when folks call us when they need something or something has gone wrong um, or there's a challenge and you know asking for additional resources and being vulnerable with that. So when that happens, it feels amazing to be able to say yes or make a connection or, um, or really show up in that way. It is such a win when you get that. Amber, how about you? Um, final thoughts? 
you know, we have to start somewhere. And so um, starting is just important, right? Sometimes we make all kinds of, we create barriers for ourselves uh, in terms of how to start on this journey of making, of creating partnerships. And so um, there are, fortunately, I mean, before we started on this journey of participatory grant making, we talked to some colleagues who had already been doing this for a long time and were able to learn from them and figure out, okay, what, what are, where, where we know how they, what their story was and their journey, how they started, what can we take from that? We don't have to reinvent the wheel. So there's lots of um, information out there for us to get started. Uh, so I would say that is um, what I'll share for now, since we're short on time. Awesome. Danielle. Yeah, Danielle, bring us home. <laughs> Well, I love that idea of being a good date and we we get a lot of feedback around appreciation for our transparency. And so I, I love that analogy, Karen. Um, and I think I would move to um, something that Ambar brought up earlier. You know, the reason we kind of keep our committees deeply engaged in this and our board deeply engaged in this is that we're looking towards sustainability and that um, we, we just always have to stay grounded in why we're doing this and you know kind of the direction we're moving what is it that we're doing and it's very much an iterative conversation it's not something we don't get community members on our committee and then we're done that that's not the way it works like we're constantly kind of like coming back to our racial equity commitments and why we're doing this and why this is important and yeah just really kind of just staying in that cycle of iteration it's really important because at some point someone who has if, if you don't someone who has not been brought along at some point will overturn the cart they will say whoa 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 what are we doing i'm not on with this and so mm -hmm. yeah just the importance of continually coming back to um why this is important why we're doing it Ladies, thank you so much for um, sharing what you've learned, for um, for sharing your time, being so generous with uh, that. A huge thanks um, to all of you, Karen, Ambar, Danielle, for the time today and the thought. And uh, we just want to thank you so much for, um, for all that you do and really appreciate um, your time with us here today. So I hope you all have a wonderful afternoon and a great week. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.